This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Paston. How are you, Steph? Yeah, very good. I'm excited because we are talking Swiftonomics today, aren't we? This is the news, of course. Taylor Swift, she's now a billionaire and she's absolutely smashing it in terms of how her um, tour is going. She's helping lift the US economy as well. So we're going to talk about her, aren't we? She's improving all our lives. Thank goodness for Taylor Swift. Um, <laughs> so, and I'll be talking to you about a company that was supposed to improve all our lives and has more or less gone bust, which is a company called Babylon. It was supposed to be the big new thing in healthcare. You know, we were essentially, rather than going to a GP, we were supposed to be being diagnosed by Babylon's apps and did a lot of work with the NHS. And now it's basically collapsed. Yes, and we'll also be looking at an interesting piece, which was looking at the value of university education in the UK versus the US. And I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but there is a big difference in terms of how much graduates are earning in those two different places. So we will talk about what's going on there and why. So should we start with Robert Girlpower then and the fact that Taylor Swift and Beyonce have helped boost the US economy? I loved seeing this <laughs> in the news this week. It was remarkable. So talk us through the economic significance of Taylor Swift. And it really is economically significant. That That's what's incredible about this. So Bloomberg Economics have worked out that the tours of Taylor Swift and Beyonce have contributed over $5 billion to GDP in America. And, you know, we're talking about all the money that the fans have spent on seeing them in concert. And people going to see them on tour has partly helped increase the US spending, which is just staggering. And just for an example for you, the average Taylor Swift fan, known as a Swifty, spends $1,500 to attend a performance when you add everything together. And her tour is on track to become the highest grossing tour ever. And she this week, it's been said she's a billionaire now, isn't she? She's 33, Robert, and she's a billionaire and she's done it with music as her main income. I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? And you're not quite a billionaire. Yeah, is that right? Is that what you're telling me? Have I, have I, have <laughs> yeah. I misread your financial older. situation? <laughs> 
It is a remarkable phenomenon. I mean, like you, I've seen all these reports about how when Taylor Swift arrives in a city, she sort of takes the city over. Swift mania uh, is extraordinary. And how people come from well, all over America at the moment, and I think also all over the world, just to go to a Taylor Swift concert. But in a way, that's not the new bit about her, is it? Because, you know, there was Beatlemania back in the 60s. There's obviously Michael Jackson mania at different times. And so we've seen obviously huge stars over decades and decades generate this kind of excitement among fans. But it's the way that she runs and manages the business side of things that I think is a bit different about her. Isn't that right? Yeah. So there's been a really interesting battle that's been going on behind the scenes with Taylor Swift and her various record labels. So to give you the little kind of potted history on this, Taylor Swift used to be signed to the record label Big Machine Records, and she was signed from them from when she started 2006 till 2018. And in that time, she made six cracking albums. You know, we're talking like Fearless, Speak Now, Red, 1989, um, and Reputation as well, one of the more recent ones. Then in 2019, the music mogul Scooter Braun who we have to thank the creation of Justin Bieber for. Whether you like him or not, he's become <laughs> a megastar. So Scooter Bronze is a big name in the music world. And he bought the record label, Big Machine Records, via his company, Ithaca Holdings, for over $300 million. This then gave him the rights to all of Taylor Swift's master recordings of those six albums. Taylor was absolutely raging about this because, well, it's pretty obvious she hates him. She's accused him of bullying her and various other things over the years in music. And she says, and she's put this all out on her social media, she was never really given the chance to buy her own music. Now, there's some debate about that, whether she was able to buy her own master recordings back because apparently Big Machine Records had said to her, if you sign back with us, we'll allow you to own the master recordings of each album every time you produce a new album for us. And she was like, stuff that, mate. I know you're going to just get me signed back and then you're going to you know, sell off the company and then I'll, where will I be left then? So she was saying that she was just given no real way of buying them back. What she's done instead really cleverly is she's got this new deal with Universal Music Group and it means she owns all the master rights to her music from now on. So everything after the Reputation album that's been released, she owns the master rights to. And that when that deal came out, that was seen as like the most artist-friendly deal ever signed by a superstar because Universal could really see her great wealth and the, the money she would bring anywhere to them. Yeah, they're laughing all the way to the bank so because, I mean, the amount of money they must be making out of her is astonishing. Yeah, and the reason it's back in the news now, because she has been re-recording these albums for a few years now, is because she's just released 1989, which was like a mega album. I and mean, we're talking songs like Shake It Off, which my little girl regularly dances to around the kitchen in our house, Bad Blood. And that's soon as that re-recording was done, that went straight to the top of the streaming charts as well. It had a couple of new songs in there too. And it kind of crashed the internet. <laughs> as you say, I mean, I think she's now, what is she, number one, two and three in the charts following the, re the release of her own version. And it is really sort of mind-boggling that you can do new versions of your old albums and, in a sense, marginalise the appeal of the original albums. So poor old Shamrock. Look, it's obvious. The valuation of the assets they bought is inevitably 
been absolutely hammered by the fact that you know Taylor has produced these new versions. Apparently, she has made some changes. I'm told again by those close to her that she never does quite the same thing again. She likes to offer fans something new. These are not just sort of carbon copies of the originals. But I think the point that I suppose is important here is she has such a connection with her fan base that if she says she puts up Taylor's version, they're instinctively going to buy that one, aren't they? Well, exactly. So I spent a lot of the last week changing my liked music on my Spotify, like basically unclicking all the songs that were owned by Shamrock Holdings and then re-clicking all the Taylor's version of it to get that back. What you feel my... you have to have that loyalty to Taylor. That's yeah, quite impressive. Because, well, yeah. I mean, she's the one who's written me. She's such a brilliant lyricist. She's an amazing musician. I mean, I've got a massive conflict of interest here. We at home have one of her signed pictures up on the wall. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, we are massive Swifties in our house. Do you know, though, in my little little star thing is I once DJed with her at the uh, Brits after party in 2013. She was up DJing the Universal's after party with James Corden and I managed to squeeze myself in for literally two minutes before security removed me. Um, <laughs> no, they didn't quite remove me. It was fine. But yeah, no, massive swifty. But the other thing I wanted to talk about was the tour. You know, we've talked about how that's impacting the US economy. When it comes to the UK, it's going to do great things, I'm sure, for us as well. Do you think it's going to bring growth back to the UK? Well, <laughs> I think we're going to need more than Taylor and Beyonce put together for that. But it'll definitely help because people do spend money on these things. It's quite incredible. Have you got a Taylor Swift friendship bracelet? Have you done that? <laughs> no, I've got a T-shirt and a signed poster, but not the friendship bracelet yet, although that could be incoming. The, the other thing with this tour is also the film that she's brought out and the company I know you know a lot about this Robert AMC who are showing it in their theatres they've posted the highest single day ticket revenue and it's 103 year history within 24 hours of the film going on sale and we saw their share price go up as well because of the Taylor Swift deal. Well it was interesting because again she does seem to do things differently from other artists and actually just on that point again i ask those who know her is her business acumen and to do with you know the people who work with her and they said well obviously she's got a good team a lot of it's her family but they say that she herself makes the big decisions and that she although she puts most of her obviously energy and ability into the music and you know what she calls her art as it were she's obviously just a very impressive and natural business person so one of the things that she did you know she felt she wanted to get this tour to a bigger audience than those who just go to the concerts and obviously the concert tickets are also pretty expensive going to a film is obviously you know less expensive but rather than go to a normal distributor and have all the sort of delays in terms of getting the film out. She went to AMC, which is this big chain of cinemas in America, got it out incredibly fast. This was, as I understand it, an unusual way of getting a film distributed. And then, obviously, we've seen it was a great success. It was such a success that AMC's share price, I think, has risen by you know almost 10% off the back of it. So she sort of creates wealth, pretty much everything she touches, that doesn't just only create you know income and wealth for herself, but also for any business associated with her. It, 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 it is remarkable. So I always thought of basically the Beatles as the in a sort of commercial sense in terms of the amount of money they generated not necessarily just for themselves because they had these terrible business managers you know they lost a lot of the, the, the income and the wealth that they generated in the late 60s but in terms of their sort of global reach they were probably till now the biggest the world has seen 
those in the industry tell me Taylor Swift is bigger. And the reason they say she's bigger is just because the technology has changed. Streaming, the fact that, you know, all over the world, in every country, people have smartphones. Her reach now is to every person more or less on the planet. And that just makes her valuable. And she exploits this. This just makes her valuable in the way they say we've never seen before with an artist, you know, even those as big as the Beatles or Michael Jackson. Well, I remember when the documentary came out about her and it was following her on one of her previous tours. I mean, she's so clever and she was trying to decide whether to publicly talk about her political position because she knew as soon as she said something, it could really massively change how a lot of people voted. And watching her process all of the, you know, what do I do? I'm really aware of I can make a difference here, but do I do it or do I stay doing music? And it's really fascinating the power she has. And I would also say as a Swifty, she has a song for every moment in your life. When you're breaking up with your ex and you're like, I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Or like when you're dealing with difficult men, the song, The Man, is just amazing to get you through those moments. It did actually get me through one. when I've never really talked about this publicly, but when I was heavily pregnant and just about to go on maternity leave, and I was hosting an event for the Northern Powerhouse up in the North. So it was a big conference, and it was talking about what was going on in the North to try and increase wealth and prosperity and all that. And then Boris Johnson, this was 2019, rocked up to do a speech and he'd come un- unannounced. It was all kind of decided last minute. It was like, Boris is going to turn up. He's going to rally the North and all of this. I'd been there all day and done various, you like, you know, different gags on stage and had this rapport with the audience as well as introducing guests and all this. And then when Boris was on stage and I was trying to, you know, keep my distance because we were in the purdy period, I think, and I couldn't, so I wasn't really allowed to have any engagement with him on stage formally because of BBC rules. And uh, he got up on stage and he did this whole like speech. And then someone asked him about that whole girly SWAT thing. Do you remember that? The whole David Cameron, the where girly SWAT was being used as an insult, basically. So then afterwards, as he was coming off stage, literally no one was applauding him. So I was like, put your hands together for our premise, blah, blah, blah. And then I just cracked a gag and said, oh, um, I'm a girly SWAT, by the way. And I'm actually really proud of it. Let's see who lasts in their jobs the longest. And honestly, within maybe 10 seconds of me saying that, and walking off stage, my phone was going wild. And apparently what had happened is, and it must have been someone like Dominic Cummins had rang Tony Hall, who was then the director general of the BBC, said, that girl, Stephanie Cummins, she's just shown uh, partiality. She's clearly going to get... And I was like, I was standing up for women. And it turned into this whole big dilemma and then the, my BBC boss rang me and was shouting at me down the phone you need to apologize and I was like apologize for what defending women anyway I'm getting louder and louder in how I'm telling the story and I remember I kind of sat down on this crumpled old sofa at the back of the stage and Andy Burnham was sat next to me and I was like what do I do I am literally about to give birth in a couple of weeks this is really stressful there's lots of now articles about this and my boss is screaming at me down the phone and Andy was like oh, mate you know what there's bigger things in life you're probably just going to have to do one of those non apology apologies just to calm it down and so that's what I had to do and I was really gutted because I thought I'm about to give birth to a little girl as well and I don't want her to come into this world thinking that 
you know, men can just do this to you. But I did get the last laugh in the end, though, because a week later I was hosting Have I Got News For You? And I got my mate who's a graphic designer and a printer to knock me up a girly SWAT jumper, which I wore on the show. And then loads of people saw it, bought the jumper from the printer, and we gave loads of money to charity, which was a charity helping called Rubies, which helps uh, girls in deprived areas with their kind of confidence and well-being in life. So I was like, two fingers to you, Tories. <laughs> And anyway, so coming back to Taylor Swift, I did do the apology and then there was a whole dissection of what had happened afterwards because I was furious that my boss hadn't even listened to my side of the story when I was telling all this. So I got in the car and just played Taylor Swift, the man, on full blast and I was driving (laughs) on going, what a fucking bastard. And that was that. Oh, well, thank you, Taylor, for helping my (laughs) friend. Now, uh, I think we should probably move on actually to something else, which is a business story that uh, is also connected to the government of Boris Johnson. And that is the rise and fall of a health company, a digital health company called Babylon. There was a rather remarkable investigation of what happened there. And actually, one of the things about it was, I mean, I was acutely aware of Babylon. It was one of those incredibly fashionable businesses. And one of the things that's slightly weird about the collapse of Babylon is it sort of collapsed a couple of months ago and almost nobody wrote about it or noticed it. So it's great that its significance has been picked up. But just talk me through the sort of highlights of what the Sunday Times has sort of exposed. Yeah, this is really interesting, this. Um, For those of you who don't know, so Babylon collapsed in August and there's been interesting investigation done, but where the Sunday Times have been talking to some of their former employees there because this is a business that was fundamentally built on hype it was a multi-billion pound business. I mean, we should we should talk a bit about that. It's a, you know, it was a British online medical business. It basically set itself up to become a sort of online GP. Yeah. So this was a company that was set up in 2013 by a guy called Ali Parser, who'd previously founded Circle Health. You might know them as the they operate private hospitals now. I think they've got around 50 in the country. And you know quite a bit about this guy as well, don't you, Robert, in terms of his background? Because he, he had big ambitions, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, look, he was one of those people who, you know, a few years ago, there was an enormous amount of talk about, you know, he generated uh, huge excitement. Occasionally, you get these business people who are sort of talked of as somehow revolutionary, you know, there's a lot of sort of fashion associated with them. He was one of those. And so I was very struck that, for example, Matt Hancock, then health secretary, was obsessed with Ali Parser and Babylon and was desperate to get Babylon working with the NHS and indeed uh, you know the NHS you know awarded them you know a very significant contract I think they got something is it about 20 million they got from the NHS yeah I mean they have had loads of amazing investors from quite early on in all of this because as I mentioned they were started in 2013 by 2016 all that Babylon had really managed to do was create an app that meant you could make appointments with GPs over Zoom. So there was this great plan for the what they call the GP at hand, which is you know an, an AI symptom checker that could diagnose as well. And that's what a lot of these contracts were then linked to. That it was a hype that kept growing. You know, it picked up contracts with the NHS and British health insurance providers, the Chinese tech giant Tencent. 
agreed a deal to offer services through their WeChat. Uh, Saudi Arabia's Foreign Wealth Fund invested $550 million in them as well. By the time they listed on the New York Stock Exchange, they were valued at $4.2 billion. But within 18 months of listing, its shares had dropped to nearly nothing. And it was losing a colossal amount of money. And from what this investigation is is saying by the Sunday Times, it's because they never did have the tech to back up all of these claims that they were making. That's the interesting question. I mean, you know, there are reports of you know, talking to some people in the industry. I mean, they were saying that in the end, there just wasn't the AI there. Um, yeah. And that basically you know, it was essentially a decision tree on an Excel spreadsheet, which is sort of going, I mean, you know, it's not quite the Victorian age, but, you know, it's not quite the cutting edge, as it were. I mean, the point about Ali Parser is he was a charismatic individual. He was clearly a brilliant salesman. But just to sort of put into context the scale of the disaster, so as you say, listed in America, valued at multi-billion, I went to company's house and I dug out the administration statement. This is the statement that uh, is put out when a company collapses under insolvency procedures. This company collapsed under insolvency procedures. And it is really extraordinary. So its biggest by this point sort of backer was a specialist lender called Albacore Capital. And in this administration statement, it says there's a deficit of more than 300 million pounds, right? That's a massive loss for this backer, absolutely off the charts from a business that, you know, as I say, the likes of Matt Hancock thought were amazing. I remember George Osborne when he was editor of The Standard. I think there was a special Babylon advertorial supplement in The Standard. Yeah, and you mentioned the donations because the Tories received more than 250 grand in donations from people and companies who had stakes in Babylon Healthcare. And, you know, Ian Osborne, one of them, who was a shareholder in Babylon via a subsidiary, donated 10 grand to Matt Hancock's leadership bid in 2019. So you can you can see why Matt Hancock was very supportive of this business. The hype around this company was was off the charts. And in the end, it doesn't appear to have been anything much there. I, I talked to one of the early backers of Ali Parsa last night. I said, you know, what do you think went wrong? And, you know, this guy said, well, he thinks in the end, Parsa was better at the sales than he was at the technology, which is a sort of important lesson. And, and you know, we're now living through you know this enormous amount of hype around AI. And again, when I talk to investors, they say, you know, for every great AI success that we're going to see over the next few years for every fortune that's made, there will be fortunes lost because whenever you get hype around some kind of new technology, the cowboys come in and there will be lots of businesses that aren't what they seem and there'll be lots of businesses that fail. One of the things that's most depressing about Babylon, of course, is the extent to which you know, ministers and officials, civil servants, definitely got taken in by... Yeah, but that's... Well, how did that happen? Like, what I don't understand is, you know, as we've mentioned, it picked up contracts from the NHS worth twenty-two million pounds over three years. One of them was was a deal which was with the Royal Wolverhampton NHS Trust. They signed a ten-year deal for this digital GP service, and within two years, 
They were like, it's not making things any better for us. So why wasn't there any testing of the technology beforehand? Why didn't someone go, right, let's have a go then. Let's say I tell them these symptoms. Is it going to diagnose these things? Is it going to make things faster? Why wasn't anyone testing it? How, how on earth can you sign a deal for a huge contract and no one goes, let's just work out how this actually functions? And from what former employees have told journalists who've been investigating this, it was chaos at the company. You know, Ali Parsa was obsessed with rushing for scale. And that meant there were, you know, mistakes being made with diagnoses and the technology and the way they were, you know, demonstrating these products to people as well. So there's allegations from former employees that it wasn't everything it was made out to be. So why on earth? Didn't anyone check it? It's a very good question. Look, I mean, we we should remember that a lot of the hype around this came during the COVID crisis when there was just sort of desperation all around to find you know, solutions to the great problem that people were having in terms of getting diagnoses and all that kind of stuff. So, But it is also the case that, frankly, and there's a long history of this, the British government and British officials don't have enough business sense. There are elements, I don't know if you remember the sort of real disaster about David Cameron and the government's obsession with a business called Greensill, which ultimately, because, you know, David Cameron actually, when he left, he stopped being prime minister, he actually worked for Greensill, took a lot of money from them. This was another business massively hyped up by those at the centre of government that ended up being a business that lost its backers a colossal amount of money. Civil servants and politicians are rubbish when it comes to commercial judgments. Yeah, which is what we were saying last week, weren't we, when we were talking about AI and saying there are not enough people in the civil service with that kind of science background as well. Yeah, and as I say, just just on the, you know, uh, those associated with it, three executives have been found guilty of fraud in America and serving prison sentences. There is no suggestion of fraud in this case. I think we've got to be very careful. You know, we've got to be very clear in pointing that out. Um, I, I would just before we wrap up on this one, I just thought I would share with you one sort of astonishing statistic, really, which is that you know you pointed out that at its peak, this was a business that was valued in the states at several billion. Dollars. I noticed in its administration statement, it said that the operation in the UK that was generating all that hype, you know, Babylon Healthcare Services, was sold to another online digital health business called eMed for five hundred thousand pounds. Right, which is trivial, frankly, and. Uh, in fitting with that, I've literally just got a notification on my phone because I use Babylon uh, through my ha- private healthcare provider. I've just got an EMED note on my phone now to say uh, I've got my doctor's appointment confirmed. So it is still going. Under the ownership of EMED. Although it still has all the Babylon branding on it. But yeah, it's uh, EMED who are now running it. Right. Should we have a break? That'd be great. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Robert Peston. And me, Steph McGovern. So we're both obsessed with student finance and higher education uh, because when it comes to it, the skills base of a country is so connected to its prosperity. And you and I were both struck by some really, I thought, important work that was done by um, the sort of data specialist at the FT called John Byrne Murdoch looking at this question of the so-called um, graduate premium. Now, the graduate premium is the amount that somebody who's gone to university gets paid relative to somebody who's not been to university. It's essentially the increase in your earning power that getting a degree confers. He came up with two really startling findings, really startling in my view. Um, one is that since 1997, which is when the numbers of people going to university in the UK went up and up and up. Uh, Tony Blair, you'll remember, made this commitment that half uh, young people would go to university. That premium has fallen from 50%. So put it another way, um, at that point, if you were a graduate, you would tend to earn over the course of your lifetime 50% more than somebody who wasn't a graduate. That's fallen to 40%, which is a big fall. Um, but the other thing he's looked at is how that premium compares with other countries, and in particular with America, where the premium is way higher. It's 70%. And the other really startling thing about America is the premium hasn't fallen. So being a, a, a graduate in America is much more valuable. What do you think is going on? Is that, Robert, do you think about the, the, the standard of the jobs in the US in terms of are there more highly paid jobs in America? And that's the reason why it's harder to earn as much money um, when you come out, of, you know, you finish a degree in, in the UK compared to the States. Like it, That must be a big part of it. I think it is a big part of it. That is not, of course, what the government wants to hear. But there is no question that one of the reasons why being a graduate in America is more valuable is just because over the last 25 years, they have been so much more successful as an economy in creating these really important, fast-growing, high-profitability companies. And you know, we're, in particular, we're looking at the, the digital space. As we've said before, pretty much all the digital giants in the world um, are in America, except 
of course, for the Chinese exceptions. So, you know, Weibo and Tencent in China. But otherwise, you know, whether it's the Googles or the Metas or these new generation um, firms that we've been talking about recently in AI, they are all American, even British DeepMind owned by Google. And so that ability to create these high value, high paying businesses is absolutely the heart of all of this. And the other thing which is, I suppose, proves this point is the sheer number of people in the UK who get degrees and then do jobs where, frankly, they don't need a degree. Mm, Yeah. I think that's Tony Blair's fault, though, personally, because I remember when that, and I've had this argument with Alistair Campbell quite a few times, when that pledge was made to get 50% of young adults to go to university, that was when I was 17. And at that point, I couldn't afford to go to university. I was very much on the view of going into industry. You know, I come from an area which is very industrial. Our school had spent a lot of time telling us about the needs of the local economy. It was very progressive in that sense. It was a, it was one of the Tory initiatives, the City Technology College. So it was very much about vocation, not just exams and Ironically, we were sponsored by British American Tobacco, which explains why we were allowed to smoke in the loose. Uh, But that's another story. And so, but it was a a school that was like focused very much on what job will you have when you leave, not which university you're going to go to. But when Tony Blair came out and said that, and there was this big whole push for people going to uni, I felt like I had to. I felt like, right. This is the society puts you in one of two camps, the clever camp, the people who go to uni or the not clever camp, the people who don't. And that is so wrong. It's so wrong. But we can look, we can all accept that this sort of hierarchy between graduates and non-graduates, you know, what they call a lack of parity of esteem is cancerous and wrong. I agree with that. But, you know, look, you went to Cambridge. Oh, was it Imperial you went to? Well, so I, I've actually done quite a few places in my time. Yeah. Now. But um, first of all, I did apply for Oxbridge. I applied for Oxford and I did get an interview because I was like, I was a girly swat. Uh, and, but when I went for my interview, I was woefully unprepared in right. the sense of everyone sat around me, knew what questions they were going to be asked. I remember I was applying to do engineering and they were like, you know, using this table and a ruler, can you calculate the coefficient of friction or something? And I'd never experienced anything like that before. So when, you know, a few weeks later, I found out I didn't get in, my head teacher had to sit me down and tell me that Oxford Uni had said to him that I was perfect on paper but not in real life. The fact that Oxbridge weren't capable of, you know, getting past the fact that you'd never been in an institution which helped you to be more confident in your presentation, it's really shocking that they dismissed yeah. you on that basis. And I know that's another thing, but my, I guess my really point is, it, my, my point with this is, and I did go to, yeah, I went to Imperial first, but then I changed to UCL for various reasons. Okay. And, you know, I came out of UCL, had a top degree, you know, all that good mm. stuff. But my most valuable experience in my career was not that. I mean, I loved UCL, but it was my apprenticeship that I'd done at Black & Decker before that, which had helped me pay to go to university. That was where I learned about how to communicate in a workplace, you know, hierarchy of a business. That's all the stuff that's got me to where I am now. But society doesn't value that. But here's a, an important question, I suppose. You came to BBC, the, I think at the time that both of us joined, do you honestly think you would have ended up at the BBC if you hadn't gone to university? Well, uh, but you see, I actually started at the BBC when I was 19. So I was working there whilst I was doing my degree, but I did 
think I was, you know, working on Moneybox. I was doing the phones on Moneybox on a Monday afternoon. So you had a foot in the door. Yes, I had a foot in the door because of my apprenticeship. So because I'd won an award at, um, at Black & Decker as part of my course there, I then got interviewed by the media because, whoa, lo and behold, a girl with a northern accent who's a woman doing engineering was seen as a bit rare. And so I um, ended up being interviewed by the media and then I basically stalked the BBC to let me have some work experience. And the BBC have been brilliant throughout my career. But do you regret going to university? I'm asking you a question, really. I, do you regret going to university? I don't think I needed to go. So just to be clear, because this is really such an important debate, do you think too many people in the UK, do you think 50% is the wrong figure? I do, unless unless universities work more with employers to create more you know, degree apprenticeships. I think we silo society into two ways. Uh, we, you know, we either say vocational if you're not very clever or we say university, pure academia if you are, and that is wrong. I know where we agree on the same thing, but my point here is I don't think we should not have universities. I just wish universities could work more with like FE colleges. So I don't know if we completely agree on all this. I mean, I certainly think that there should be much higher status for engineering, technical subjects, you know, the so-called pure academic subjects don't, you know, aren't necessarily the be all and end all. And I completely agree with all of that. And one of the things that if you just look back over at least 50 years, probably longer, you know, one of the reasons why German people are so much richer is because they don't have this hierarchy between, you know, technical subjects and non-technical subjects yeah. in the way that we do in the UK. But, and this is really quite important, I think, there is also an issue, which I think is related to all of this, about the the nature of the jobs that an economy offers. And there's a fascinating sort of chicken and egg conundrum here. So I talked earlier about the fall in the so-called premium that um, a graduate gets relative to somebody who hasn't been to university, you know, the fall in the, the amount extra they earn. There hasn't been a fall in London and the Southeast. Why is that? Because there are it's partly the city of London, but just in general, there are more thriving, high salary, high income businesses in London and the southeast than there are in any other part of the country. It's to do with the great, you know, regional and you know national inequalities we've got in the UK. That then takes you on to this whole question of what is wrong with the structure of the economy that means that those jobs aren't there and it's not the problem is not that in the uk you know for example people do significantly fewer so-called stem subjects so science technology maths and the rest um it is true that as a proportion of all degrees in the uk there are slightly you know i think it's sort of there's about three or four percent fewer stem graduates in the uk than in america but it's not enough that that you know the, the, the relatively smaller number of people doing those important um, science and tech subjects is not enough to explain why the graduate premium in america is that much higher in the end it comes down to why aren't we better as an economy in creating these companies that offer better jobs that i mean that's essentially the heart of it in my view yeah, and I mean, coming back to that kind of north-south divide as well you're talking about, a lot of that's to do with infrastructure and the fact that in the north, 
there isn't that ability for businesses, I think, to want to invest in areas where people are going to struggle to get to work. And, you know, there's a big reason why the jobs aren't in the north. And I think it's a lot to do with businesses thinking that the infrastructure isn't there necessarily for them. Not all of them, obviously. There's some brilliant businesses in the north. But I think that's really hard to take as someone who doesn't want to move away from where I live and grew up. I want to work in the area I grew up in, but it's really, really difficult to. Now, I think we should move on to questions in a minute, but I just wanted to leave us with one sort of big thought that I think we'll come back to rather than going into it in detail now, which is the other really shocking statistic that you know Bern Murdoch showed was there is this view that American degrees are way more expensive than British ones. He showed that the debt accumulated by a typical British student these days as a result of going to university is pretty much the biggest in the world, bigger even than in America. This takes us on to a different but related subject, but I think we should come back to this, which is, you know, if you've got this debt around your neck of £50,000 and more as a result of going to university, and you will be paying that back as effectively a tax for most of your working life, that in itself also is, you know, a big issue. Uh, when you're thinking about going to university. I mean, strikingly, we've heard from Labour that they intend to reform the system. They haven't said how. Um, and so I think we should come back to this issue, which I think is a really important one. You know, not only, you know, whether going to university is intrinsically useful in itself, which is what we've been talking about, but how you pay for it and the impact of this huge amount of additional debt that is being forced on young people. Yeah, I mean, I only paid mine off, my student loan off a, a few years ago. And I, you but know, you, I, borrowed, you, you borrowed way less than today's generation. No, I know. Yeah, but more than you. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I, was, I, I cannot now believe how lucky I was. Go to university was free. Just one little thing I wanted to add to that, because last night I was with the charity Young Enterprise, and it, this is something I did in school as well. So it's where you basically, a charity comes in and helps you set up a business in your school, and you have like a managing director, you have a marketing person, you talk about you know your shareholders and everything else, how you're going to invest, and all these brilliant schools create these brilliant businesses. And some of them end up actually becoming actual businesses. But um, I was with with them last night in Leeds and with some businesses who were wanting to do more with Young Enterprise and a load of teachers as well and some of the people who've recently done the scheme. And the the teachers were like, we, we would love to have more of this, but we literally have no time to do these, um, you know, these programs because it means extra work for teachers. And I know this is going on to another topic, but if we're thinking about preparing kids for the future in terms of skills they need, something like Young Enterprise should be part of the curriculum. No, and it's also speakers for schools. We do. I mean, you know, our problem is not we've got tons of employers who want to offer, uh, you know, this charity I set up, Speakers for Schools. We've got tons of employers, hundreds of them that want to uh, offer, you know, three or four days of really great work experience to young people. But actually persuading the schools um, to release the kids for three or four days is hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. Should we have a look at some questions now? Um, just a reminder, the email is restismoney at gmail.com if you want to send those in, or you can just uh, DM us on our social media pages as well, or put a comment under our posts with questions too, and we will get them. Uh, I'm going to start with a question about fast fashion. Hovey Hanley, with the news of fast fashion brand Sheehan buying Misguided, what are your thoughts, our thoughts on the fast fashion industry? Should the government do more 
for example, to promote sustainable practices and clamp down on fast fashion. What's your view? I actually think they do need to, but obviously it's really complicated in terms of how they do this because it's something that, for example, the EU is, is looking at at the moment. But I'm obsessed with Shein. It's a really fascinating company. So for those of you who don't know uh, what it is, Shein, it's an online fashion brand. It sells rapidly produced clothes cheaply. Many of them are under $10. I think their average garment is $7. Um, and what they do is they use AI to identify trends and then they will churn out thousands of garments in a record time. So at any one point on the site, there's something like 600,000 items listed on there. Um, in terms of their valuation and how big they are, last year, they were valued at $100 billion, which is more than H&M and Zara combined. It has since fallen uh, in value, but they're a massive player. But they have faced backlash um, over their labor practices, which they deny any wrongdoing on, over the pollution from fast fashion as well. They're in the middle of a load of lawsuits at the minute. But as was rightly pointed out by Harvey, they've just bought Misguided. This is, this is a British company which grew to become one of the UK's biggest fast fashion brands with the likes of like Nicole Scherzinger promoting it and all that. They got into a bit of financial difficulty back in 2022 because of rising prices, supply chain, increased competition. They went into administration. They were bought by Mike Ashley's Fraser Group. And then recently Fraser Group have sold the the, uh, the business or part of the business to Shein. But yeah, in answer to the question, I do think there needs to be more legislation because global consumption of clothes is expected to grow by 63% from now to 2030. That's 102 million tonnes of, of clothes. This is a European Environment Agency who are predicting this. So you can only imagine how much is going to end up in landfill. There's got to be something to slow this down, to stop this happening. And the EU are trying to reform things. So they've said that by 2030, textiles imported into the EU will need to be long-lived and recyclable and made from recycled fibres, free from hazardous substances and produced in respect of things like social rights and the environment. So kind of ticking off all the allegations that are alleged to these fast fashion companies. But sustainability campaigners are saying it's actually too vague. This type of legislation is too vague. You know, they're not set up to handle the recycling. Um, you know, lots of fabrics are made up of multiple fibres and some of them will contaminate the recycling process. So who's going to do that? How are you going to, you know, make this cost effective for people? And so it, it, it looks like a, it's a really difficult thing to do. I guess it's everything... Robert, when we talk about reaching net zero and all the other environmental things, it's way more complex than just saying, right, we need to start recycling more. The companies who are voluntarily doing stuff, trying to better themselves, end up putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage. So, you know, there needs to be, I think, formal legislation on this to sort it out. I'll shut up now. now What's the next <laughs> no, question? No, listen, listen, I could... I could listen to this all night and probably You couldn't. Will. I know you um, couldn't. And, now listen, <laughs> um, so look, you'll be aware that the stock market in the US, stock market in the UK has been performing very badly over the last few weeks. That's partly as a result of, you know, Chinese slowdown. It's partly a result of anxieties associated with the economic impacts of the terrible events in the Middle East. But we've got a question on one aspect of particularly what's going on in the UK. Derek says, with the news that listed small and medium companies are in so-called doom loop of decline, how important are these smaller companies for the UK economy? So you've got to make a distinction here between small companies in general, most of which are not listed, and 
those listed on either AIM or the main London stock exchange. And, you know, as I've said recently, the last few weeks, share price performance has been poor, knocked by events in the Middle East, fear of uh, economic damage as a result of what's going on in the Middle East and slow growth in China. Um, but you have to strip out that short-term impact from the longer-term problem, which is that British companies are undervalued compared to companies in the rest of the world. That is a serious problem because it means that the price of new money, the price of raising capital for British companies is higher than it is for companies in the rest of the world. And that does have an impact not only for those companies already listed on the stock market, but for any company that's ambitious and wants to grow. Uh, you know, It's one of the reasons why so many good companies move abroad, go to America, for example, to raise money. So I would say that, yes, Derek has hit on a very important and serious problem in the UK, the fact that investors across the world are basically shunning British companies when it comes to investment, particularly investment in the stock market, is a really big and serious problem. And I am slightly surprised that neither this government nor indeed the Labour opposition at the moment is addressing this with some kind of serious plan, uh, because we will all be poorer if you know, we cannot get the world's investors to believe that the prospects of the UK um, are better. Thank you very much uh, for the questions you sent in. Uh, we'll try and get through as many as we can each episode, but we're going to leave things there. So yeah, thanks for listening. And just a reminder, it's restismoney at gmail.com or all of our socials as well. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm running away, believe it or not, to interview the Prime Minister about AI. So I can report back to you on that next week. Oh, okie dokie. Well, let us know how you get on with that and hopefully we'll have a bit of... Uh, gossip from that next week but thanks for listening bye 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 bye